And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Science! Science! Yes. I know the human being and science, science. can peacefully. This was now Hi guys, this is Nathan Allen. Sean Allen. This is episode three of Petri Dish. And for this one, we wanted to delve into a really important topic. Evolution. As you guys know, I'm of the opinion that the Earth was made 16,000 years ago by Lord Emperor Xenu <laughs> as a prison for all the different alien species that Xenu conquered in global domination before being stopped by a weird alliance of Daleks and Doctor Who. <laughs> now, I know, however, from my conversations with Sean, that that might not be true. And even more importantly, that there's a lot of misconceptions about evolution or how evolution works. All the living creatures we see today, as weird as they can be, from platypuses... Over to even just, I mean, you and me, we're all the product of evolution as it actually operates. And so we wanted to take some animals, talk about evolution, really see on a granular, even eventually a genetic level, how evolution really is a successful, efficacious, logical theory about organic life. And to start that, the first thing we thought we should tackle is just generally like, how does evolution even really work? Sean, what's your take on it? I think evolution is an interesting thing because some people come at it from kind of your original direction, which is as sort of like this evil god. As, as a lie made by <laughs> the elders of Zion to blind us to the truth. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> what were you saying? <laughs> yeah. So some other people take it from far too hyper-rational a perspective where mm. they kind of have this idea of evolution as being like a very optimized process. And I think that is also a misconception about how evolution works. Wait, when you say optimized, what do you mean by that exactly? So I think that there's this kind of popular sort of engineering idea where there's some kind of problem with the environment, like, oh, an animal needs to stay warm or something like that, or it wants to eat something high in a tree. And then because there's this problem, nature tries to find the best solution to that. And right. evolution is kind of this selection towards the best solution. Yeah. Like all the horses get together and look at an apple in a tree. They're like, oh, well, if over a million years we got our necks longer. Yeah. Like we could really get that. Right. I'm being a little unfair to the optimization argument. But basically, that's not really how evolution works anyway. So the way that evolution works is much more like, uh, you know Bear Grylls, that TV show with Bear Grylls? No. Oh, come on. He's, Just like, he's like the British dude. <laughs> I love Bear Grylls. He's like, I'm going to get dropped off in the wild. Yeah, he's and always... And I may need to drink some piss to survive. You know, that kind of yeah, dude. Yeah, I just watched those clips. Yeah, it's beautiful. So uh, I kind of imagine it in sort of like a Bear Grylls-esque situation where you are you get kind of airlifted, helicopter cool style up to like the top of a mountain. And your Bear Grylls goal is to get down off the top of that mountain, right? right? And so when you're up there at the top and you're kind of scoping out your options, maybe there's like a few paths you can go down. Right. So you have these options. You start to go down path number one and really quickly you realize path one sucks. Right. right? You're just like, this is ass. I don't want to do this path. So you come on back to the top. Maybe you pick path number two. Right. And it's working out beautifully. And you're going down this path. You've been trekking on it for hours and hours and hours. 
And then all of a sudden you reach a part where it's not so great anymore. It's it's sort of sucky. You're not having a good time. There's like a big chasm or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. You have to cross a big abyss. Yeah, or just like a field of nothing but hornets or mm. some shit. You, you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, it's a good sucks. source of protein. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the insects are a good source of protein, <laughs> but you're going to get stung. <laughs> um, yeah, but the thing is that you know, path two sucks, and maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, well, maybe path three would have been better, and path three was the best one, but you didn't pick it, dude. You're okay? already, like, six miles into path two. Right, you're way too far, and you're not gonna hike back up the fucking mountain just so you can get to path three, yeah. right? You're on path two, and you're just gonna have to figure out what you can do from there, yeah. and that is what evolution is like. Evolution has the sunk cost of all of your historical genetic modifications and changes. Right. You've evolved to a certain point, and you're not going to go back because you think that there's a better option a million years ago. Right. It's like, oh, we took the wrong turn way back when. We should have shifted that around. Right. Evolution is just about taking what you have when you have it and then doing your best, getting selected in directions to try to deal with the environment you have. So to recap, the optimization misconception about evolution is that you get to perfectly plan your hike, and so you have the most efficient hike possible. The way evolution actually works is you're on your hike, so you just have to solve problems as they come. Now then, there's the intelligent design version of your hike, where you just wake up in the middle of the night at the bottom of the woods, who put you there? It must be Jesus. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's basically like God roofied you or something, and you end up at the bottom. <laughs> the of God roofie theory <laughs> of history and change. And to defend intelligent design, though, there's a lot of people who, once you take a step back from the metaphor, they look at all the weirdo animals and creatures in the world, and they wonder, how can evolution explain this thing? I'm going to use the weirdest, most messed up example that proves that at least Satan is poorly designing the world. <laughs> the Australian duck-billed platypus. We're going to go through a list and we're going to talk about why the platypus either proves the existence of God or if you're right, Mr. Scientist, proves evolution. So, you have accepted my challenge, Mr. Science Man. <laughs> Duckbill platypus. Here's why Duckbill platypus proves that an angry, drunk, evil god has designed our world. One, a Duckbill platypus's eyes barely work, can't even really see. Two, it lays eggs. That's weird, that's pervert. Three, it uses, I'm looking at notes, electrolocation? What the hell is electrolocation? <laughs> That's not right. That's not what mammals are supposed to do. Next, it's got a beaver-like tail. That's easy to cut off, bro. Okay, <laughs> Australians can hunt that tail. You shouldn't put your fat there. <laughs> All right. And finally, oh, not even finally. They got venom. Uh, venom spurs seem like a good idea, actually. <laughs> we should probably have venom spurs. Uh, uh, that, that's a good idea. But lastly, they don't... And, Listen to this. They don't have nipples. They have patches of skin that secrete milk. Think about that. The most beautiful thing a mother gives her child slash husband. 
milk from nipples. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and duckbill platypuses don't even have that. Oh, man. So answer me, Mr. <laughs> Scientist. Answer me that. How can a creature that doesn't even have nipples be created by evolution and not by an evil, evil pagan god? I like how when you get belligerent, you get this weird sort of voice going. What are you, you, you even talking about? <laughs> it's kind of scary. <laughs> um, I am the sword of Michael. Yeah, it's some freaky shit. You get really blue collar. You know what I mean? I'm it's just like so the, mad. The scarier you get. We're saying I'm deplorable? <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, okay, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You gave, you gave a bunch of traits of the platypus. Although conspicuously left off the duck bill, which I think is a fascinating decision when that, they're it, called the duck bill platypus. It's <laughs> good. <laughs> duck, I get the duck bill. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things that happens in evolution is that you'll start down a track. Like, for example, maybe you're an animal who has a certain kind of food that not a lot of other animals are eating. And so you want to get really good at eating that food. Right. So Bear Grylls is a platypussy and he's walking down the mountain. And he only finds this type of food. What's the type of food he finds? Right. So he's finding a lot of food in shells, like snails and stuff like that, for example. And one of the things about animals in shells is that that shell is a good protective casing. And so a lot of other animals are like, I don't really want to deal with that shit. Right. Yeah. It is a good protective feature. And, you know, you're this proto-platypus way right. back. Bear platypussy grills nose. Yeah. Snails is a good source of protein. Millions of years back. And he's seen a lot of snails... Okay, and he wants to be able to eat some of these uh, kind of snail, crustacean-y, gastropod kind of guys. They're so tasty. Yeah. And they're in the water. They're in the riverbed. They're in the lake bed. They're kind of down in the mud. They're a little hard to find. No one else is really eating them. So there's a lot of them. Right. And so that's what's called an ecological niche that can be filled by the platypus. And Some so, people say our podcast is niche. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are right. <laughs> Some people are very right. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We try to go broad for like five minutes and it gets <laughs> narrow really fast. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we got the platypus. And when you have this kind of food and you want to get better at eating it, what we've seen from the fossil record, actually, oh. from millions of years ago, is that there were more and more species of platypus way back when. And we've actually gotten fewer over time. But way back when, their duck bills showed different kinds of designs. It was sort of this experimentation period about what kind of duck bill is best for hunting these guys that live down in the mud. And a duck bill is, you know, sort of shovel-shaped, and so you can kind of dig into the mud and look around there. Quick side question. Yeah. So did earlier fossils and animals, like mammals, have duck bills, and most of them just lost duck bills? Or mm. is it that they didn't have duck bills and slowly evolved their mouths to be more wrong? <laughs> like, oh my God, a duck bill's happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more of the evolving your mouth to be more wrong direction. Jesus. Yeah, so so out of monotremes, which is the group that the platypus lives in, mm. one branch of them sort of experimented on duck bills. Mm. And out of that branch, the platypus is the one that survives right. now. It worked. Yeah, it worked for so them. So they kept it. And the thing about the duck bill and rooting around in the mud for your food is that it's really hard to see, right? Like you're underwater, you're digging around in mud, you're kicking it all up into the water. So eyes became less and less useful. And so that's one of the reasons why the duck bill platypus, their eyes are so not very good for mammals. And they actually close them when they're underwater. So they don't use their eyes at all for hunting their food. So how do they find their food then? Right. So they use one of the other traits that you mentioned and poo-pooed as being too weird sounding and academic 
mm-hmm. electrolocation. Okay. It's a lot of syllables. You need to walk that one out for me. But they're very sexy syllables. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Okay. It does. Electrolocation. It sounds like a superpower. Dude, I'm like that Republican lady and you're James Carville right now. I'm James Carville? Yeah, you got that good mouth. And you're like seducing me with your strange, strange ways. Oh, okay. You, I can't really do you, a Cajun you accent. You liberal. <laughs> Cajun <laughs> so now, style. So now go and tell me about that platypus. <laughs> yeah, so electrolocation is something you see in a few other animal species, but not typically mammals. Uh-huh. And what it is is being able to detect electrical signals coming from the inside of other animals' bodies. So it's like if you were trying to find a Wi-Fi signal. And your hairs rose while a Wi-Fi signal went past you. You could just feel it. Yeah, yeah. It's like another kind of sensation. It's another sense they have. So. I'm glad you didn't just tell me I'm wrong. That's so polite of you. Yeah. I try to yes and. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's very improv So basically, they have this other sense where they can detect electrical signals from other animal bodies. And this does not require their sight at all. That organ is in their duck bill. So what? So their duck bill will go down into the mud and kind of search around it almost like a metal detector. They can tell when there are animals nearby, their food nearby. Wow. And they don't need uh, their eyesight or ears even. They'll actually shut off their ears when they're underwater. So when they're swimming around, they're deaf and blind and just using electrolocation. This is probably too granular, but how the hell does that sort of shit work on a chemical level? Like what is even... What? Like, how do you design that? Yeah, so... <laughs> Although no one designed it. Whoa, close call. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. It's electrical impulses that, as far as I understand, are being carried actually through the water medium. Right? So it, it works underwater because you can kind of pick up these electrical signals that are actually passing through. Like, but what's, what is the organ actually, right? Like, what's, what's the... It's, 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 like a, it's like a tangle of neurons. Oh... That's yeah. so interesting. It wouldn't be such a letdown if you died and there was a heaven and you went to heaven and God was a tech bro who uh, was like, yeah, dude, <laughs> like I've designed all these elegant systems and people just aren't using my systems right. And you're like, I'm so mad right now. <laughs> are you not concerned that some chunk of our listenership is going to be tech bros and they're going to be like really mad that you're like besmirching their God? Uh, <laughs> do tech bros have like these little they have, like shrines <laughs> St. Paul dude wrote the best code <laughs> that's right, not anyway. how tech bros talk so how about how about their tails what's up with tails see like I don't put fat in a tail and most mammals don't so why do duckbills got this fat tail a uh, tail in which you store fat is actually a feature that you see in several animal species. And it's because it's a location away from your main body mass. Fat is a really good way to store energy for kind of like the longer term. Right. Which hypothetically is what we use it for, but it just ends up being a paunch belly. And then like, there's nothing you can do about it as human beings. Like we just end up sucking. But like some animals will store their fat viscerally or like around their entire body um, as insulation. Right. But the duckbill platypus does not really need it that much for insulation. In fact, duckbill platypuses are sort of weird in that their core body temperature is lower than almost any other mammal. If I remember correctly, it's like 32 degrees Celsius instead of 37 degrees Celsius. What the f*** is Celsius? (laughs) (laughs) 
Celsius. <laughs> uh, so what is that, like 90 degrees or something? Or like 85 or something? Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have to cut this part out because I, d I do not remember what the conversion is. You're a terrible scientist. <laughs> okay, so they're cooler than we are because we're 98.6 and they're less than that. And they do not really need that body fat for insulation as much. Hmm. It's more for longer term storage. And so they kind of put it a little bit further away from your body, similar to like uh, how our testes work. You want it's all the fat, <laughs> no. all that Velveeta I'm cheese goes about, straight I'm to my balls. The temperature, baby, the temperature oh. is you want them to be a little bit cooler, ah. so you let them kind of drop away from the body a little bit. That's where you're storing the wine. That's the wine cellar. <laughs> that's, okay, where, that's all the good sauce. It's the juice. It's the juice that you uh. that you're bringing to the yeah. podcast. <laughs> um, oh boy. Okay, so yeah, so that, that's one of the reasons why they have this tail kind of sitting further okay. out. Okay, so your bare platypussy grills, you're on your trail, you have your tail, you got your duck bill, you electrolocate stuff. How about the nipples? Yeah. Why does Bear Grylls not have nipples? Why has he just got patches of skin that secrete milk? Yeah, so this one I actually uh, like a lot. And the, <laughs> uh. <laughs> this is a really strange idea. The milk patch idea and just having these little baby platypuses kind of, you know, like lick it up. Yeah, like, and just like kind of lick the milk up. <laughs> I actually like that a lot. And the evolutionary path to there is a really, really good example <laughs> of the goofy way that evolution works, how it's not an optimization process. So probably way back when, early on, before we had these branches, there were nipples, okay? Because- <laughs> In what, the beginning. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that we think is that actually the muscles involved in suckling, or as I'm gonna say for the rest of the episode, sucking. Yes. The muscles involved in sucking probably evolved in the jaw of these animals really early on, before the split that made monotremes and sure. everything like before that. Before we are anything else, we are sucking creatures. Yeah, we're good at that sucking, yes. okay? And so nipples were probably around as a way to get the milk out of the mother for the babies. But over time, with the evolution of this duck bill, and with the need to create enough space for the electrolocation machinery within the duck bill, made it so that you had the duckbill platypus had to evolve their muscles to be able to kind of make more room and use their duck bill better, including the sort of like kind of chewing, grinding motion that they would use for the shells. So basically their whole heads, their muscles rearranged and over time made it so that they got worse and worse at sucking. So you're telling me that, that they're not really suck animals. Right. See that... Okay, so maybe they are a product of evolution, but they're a bastard product of evolution. Because, like, 90% of what I do with my mouth is sucking. Yeah. 100% of what you do with your mouth is suck. It's all and like, I do. I don't feel any kinship with a creature that does not suck for a living. Well, I mean, I don't know how much platypuses are upset that they're not close kins of us. Are you saying I'm low, are you saying I'm low class? <laughs> <laughs> are you calling me classless? I think that they're happy doing their thing over there. And... I may be a coal miner, sir, who noodles for my dinner. God damn it. But I am a man of pride, sir. Oh, man. Yeah, we set a switch off inside of you, huh? You're just, you're just doing a whole new thing. My now. name is Nathan Jimmy Sheridano <laughs> Allen, and okay. I'm a proud man. You platypussy. Look, the main point is platypuses, they're more the licking type. Interesting. And, and that's the, because they just don't need to suck for any of their food. 
Right, and and to get good at doing what they needed to do for their food, they got worse at something else. That happens a lot in evolution. Sometimes there's trade-offs where right. you get better at something, you get worse at something else, and sometimes that something else is really important. Right. Getting food from your mother is really important right. for the life of these creatures, but to solve that problem... <laughs> instead of going backwards, they just change the way that you get that right. food out of the mother. So like in the world of humans, where we have boba tea and prostitutes, not being able to suck seems like it doesn't even make any sense. Oh my and God. if you suddenly took a platypus and you put him into a boba shop or a prostitution den, they would just not survive. But that's not the context in which they evolved. Over millions of years, they had neither boba tea nor prostitution. And so, as we know, of course they didn't have sucking, and of course that trade-off is legitimate within the tens, hundreds, millions of years of their evolution. Yeah, I mean, I'm frankly blown away by the boba tea part of that. I hadn't even thought about what a lack of sucking would do to my boba tea consumption. It would be gone. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> all right, so very good points on all sides. Do, do platypuses <laughs> just like secrete boba? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do not know what platypus milk is like, but I, I'd like to think it's like boba. Okay, fine, Mr. Science Man. You win this round. Platypussies, maybe they are. A product of evolution. Yeah, and look, man, I, I get where the idea comes from that they're weird. Okay, I, I think platypuses are weird. They got plenty of weird shit going on, right? Having a duckbill is strange. Laying eggs is strange. And then on top of all of that, their sex chromosomes are all confusing. Like they, they got XY like we do, but they have five pairs of X chromosomes that get all linked up together and confusing. It's a strange deal. What are your sex chromosomes? I hope XY. Am I the only XX? <laughs> no, no. There's plenty of ladies out there that are XX. You might be YY. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they have they have uh, ten chromosomes. Uh, sex they, chromosomes. They have ten sex chromosomes. Yeah. Is that part of the reason they're so weird? Well, I don't know if there's a very good reason why they need to have ten of them to be weird, but they are not the only animal that has a kind of different system than we do. There's a lot of diversity insect chromosomes out Jeez. there, and maybe sometime we'll get to talk about it. Well, there's a whole topic. Genetics is the vernacular or the language of evolution. If we're going to talk about evolution, we have to delve into it. Yeah, and I think there's an animal that has a particular trait that is a really good example of being able to trace the effects of evolution, and I think we can get to that right after a break. Hi, this is Donatello Iglesias, and if you're like my friends... There's no mystery more confusing than the Trump voter. You don't think alike, you don't watch the same shows, you don't like the same games. You're, well, you're both white, but you just don't understand them. Well, the old saying goes, to understand a man, eat a mile of his shit. Sign up for Deplorables. It's like Lunchables, but for white trailer trash. Every week, you'll get a package of Middle America favorites, from heart attack-inducing pork rinds, to colon-clogging Slim Jims, to bricks upon bricks of viscous Velveeta. After a few weeks, you'll understand the Trump voter on a gut level, and smell like one too. And if you order before Labor Day, you'll get a special package celebrating all the white ethnic groups who put aside their material interests to vote Donald Trump. Polish pierogies, cans of Jersey Shore anchovies, and a dozen uncooked raw russet potatoes from our unreconstructed Irish friends. The thick bounty of former Democrats is yours for the taking. It feels like every day in the Trump era, we're getting shat on by white supremacists. Well, take their shit and eat it too with deplorables. 
Guys, welcome back. Now we're going to talk about the actual genetics of really weird evolutionary traits. To talk about it, we're going to look at some fishes. Yeah, so we're going to really specifically look at a kind of fish that has a, a basically an antifreeze protein in all of the fluids inside of its body, and that helps keep it from freezing. Think about that. The antifreeze you put on your car that your teenage son drinks, that antifreeze is inside of a fish. It makes its own antifreeze. What the hell is that? Yeah, and if you do have preteens drinking antifreeze, you should give them vodka. (laughs) Because antifreeze is very toxic. And actually, the ethanol in vodka counteracts the toxicity. You heard it from here first, folks. Antifreeze, vodka cocktails. That's if you sign up for our Patreon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So fish, Sean, don't get sidetracked. Yeah, okay. So about 14 million years ago... Antarctica and the Southern Ocean got kind of frosty. For those who don't know, Antarctica is south of here. It's an icy place. You know, it's interesting. I was going to first say, like, we might have listeners in other places, but it's south of everywhere. So So that actually works out. Um, Yeah, so we got Antarctica, and it started getting real frosty about 14 million years ago. That's a long time ago. And there were fish living in that area, these precursors of uh, what are basically called the Antarctic toothfish. Yeah. And sometimes they're confused for cod, but cod are usually up north around the Arctic. So these are like southern cod type dudes swimming around the ocean. And because the waters were getting colder and colder, it was getting to a point where it could get cold enough where they couldn't survive. And so I want to explain to kind of a branch off here, talk about why cold could be an issue for animals. One of the possibilities is that you'll have freezing, okay? And I think that we can appreciate that if you are completely frozen solid, you're probably dead. (laughs) (laughs) But aside from that, ice crystals on a microscopic level, when you kind of zoom down into them. Right. H2O. God damn. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. (laughs) When when you zoom down at ice crystals. Two heliums, one Oprah. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) When you really zoom down (laughs) on these ice crystals, they can get sharp. And they can wreak havoc on biological systems like cells. Cells can have a hard time. Even if the ice crystals are outside the cell, they can cause an environment where the cell can't really survive. Right, a cell is a wobbly-bubbly cell membrane. Yes. And then ice crystal gets right in there, cuts it. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of the things about ice crystals is that they can kind of grow through this process. They can nucleate. And what that means Mm. is that you'll have one ice crystal. Yeah. And it can grow by having water around it, water, you know, kind of liquid water around it start to attach. And so one ice crystal can make a whole kind of vat of water freeze. Cat's cradle. Yes. Whoa. Yeah, that's a Vonnegut book. I don't know. Literate. I don't know if people still read. That's right. (laughs) That might not be very popular with our listeners, but whatever. Um, So so ice nucleates. Right. And so uh, I guess one of the reasons why that comes up is because the ocean is so salty, right? The freezing point of the ocean is actually depressed. It's lower than just a glass of water that is perfectly pure. Mm. Water freezes at zero degrees Celsius. Right. But ocean water freezes several degrees lower than that. Sure. I mean, that's why you see photos of Antarctica and it's ice and also water. Right. And you're like, how does that happen? Right. (laughs) But a lot of ocean fish, their interior fluids are what's called 
hypotonic to the ocean. And that means that their interior fluids are less salty. So they should be frozen. So they can freeze. Basically the situation mm. could be that they could be swimming in liquid water in the ocean and freeze on the inside because wow. their insides can freeze at a higher temperature than the ocean. That sucks. So they need to avoid that shit, right? right? right like right. that, they want to keep living and the desire to survive as a species is one of the major drivers of evolution. And just a super quick rehash, it's not like these fish found Antarctica or like, let's live there. They were already in Antarctica and it slowly got colder and they're like, what the fuck? Yeah, so then there was this pressure to be able to evolve. And in a certain sense, it's still an opportunity thing, right? Fish can swim around. They could have swam north right. and just avoided it. But there would have still been food hanging around. Any right. fish that could figure it out would get a big advantage. And so what ended up happening for this fish is that they had this particular protein. And because this was only 14 million years ago, the fish still have the original protein before it changed into this antifreeze protein. They have okay. two copies one stayed the same, more or less, and the other one evolved into antifreeze. So what does it mean that a protein became a different protein? Right, and so some people think that one of the major drivers for evolution happens genetically, through genetic changes to your DNA. Right. And the proteins that are coded by that DNA. Right, So to be okay. able to look different or to have a new function, a new thing you can do, usually that means you need to have new proteins to do it from. But usually those proteins aren't made from scratch. Usually what happens is you'll have a protein that does something else, a gene that right. codes for a protein that does something else, right. and it gets duplicated. Right. In your cells is DNA. The DNA is the blueprint off of which you, you make proteins. If the blueprint changes, then the protein also changes. Right. And a lot of times if you just take that one gene, that one blueprint, and start changing it willy-nilly, mm -hmm. most of the time that just breaks the protein. Right. And so that's not, <laughs> that's not usually right. a great way to evolve. You have a blueprint for a house. And then all of a sudden, because of like uh, an error, you don't have a central pillar. The house usually collapses. Right. And I mean, honestly, the way that mutations work, it'd almost be like taking blueprints and then having a kid draw on it with crayon. <laughs> like, usually mutations fuck up a blueprint. But on occasion, a kid's like just really nails yeah. it. You're like, oh shit, that kid knew something. Yeah. 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 So, so basically, the point I'm trying to make is that if you mutate just the original blueprint, mm. you're probably going to mess up the protein. And the evolution, you're not going to get better at anything. You're just right. going to get worse, right? right? And so it seems like a lot of times that evolution did work out well is because a gene got duplicated. Mm. You basically made another copy of that blueprint and then started fucking around with the copy. Oh, interesting. And you keep the original because it still does some kind of function you like. Ah. And so that seems to be what happened in this fish species, this toothfish. There was an original gene... And the gene was for something called trypsinogen. And trypsinogen is a digestive protein. It's something that gets secreted into your gut to help you break down proteins. Sexy. Okay. So the fish made a copy. Yeah. Okay. And the first copy of trypsinogen kept doing what it was doing. The second copy got messed up real hard. The kid did not color within the lines. Right. The, the kid started, basically took a part of it and then copied it over and over again and made the gene really not work the way that it was supposed to anymore. But as sort of this kind of offshoot made it so that that protein now can actually stick to ice really well. Interesting. So it made the protein stickier in terms of its ability to latch onto ice. And it still got secreted into the gut just like the original did. And what it probably did was it made the fish be able to survive in the colder waters because fish are constantly drinking water. 
and a lot of times are probably drinking ice crystals. And if those ice crystals nucleate, they could freeze the inside of your gut. <laughs> and those fish would die. Right, right, right. And so these proteins were binding onto the ice crystals and basically making it so that literally those ice crystals couldn't grow anymore. Because ice crystals, the water has to actually be able to attach to it. And this protein's just taking up all the spots. It just latches on. Wow. And so what yeah. started out just getting secreted into the gut, now in those fish, is everywhere. Right. It's around all kinds of cells. It's in their blood. It's in their gut. And in those liquids, it probably does the same thing, where if there's any ice crystals around, it'll bind onto the ice crystal and keep it from growing. So that's crazy then. So basically, there's all these times where DNA gets duplicated and the kid draws the DNA and the DNA gets fucked up. And just one of those times, it happens that the new drawing that the kid made makes something completely unexpectedly great. That fish breeds and that trait slowly expands in the population until it defines the entire population that remains in the place it is fit. Yeah, it definitely added to fitness. And if you look at genomes, usually you'll find at least some kind of graveyards of genes that got broken in a way that doesn't help. Right. So sometimes you'll find duplication events where the gene got broken and then you just see kind of the skeletal remnants of it where it never conferred any fitness benefit. Mm. And then other times duplication events were so critical to what we think of as differences in animals that they're almost defining. So there's a family of genes called the Hox genes, H-O-X, and Hox genes are central to body plans. And so like when you think about like, oh, there's a head and there's a thorax oh, and stuff like that. Okay. That kind of creation of different parts of the body is from literal duplications of those Hox genes. So it's like you duplicate a Hox gene and then now all of a sudden you have a thorax. Wow. Okay. And that is critical for animal evolution. Sure, I can see why. <laughs> yeah, but the, it, it, it is because duplication events can spur these really incredible evolutionary leaps because now you can experiment on the gene. Okay. You know, I got to admit, Mr. Science Man, at the start of this conversation, I didn't entirely believe in these things called genes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Except Levi's, proud American. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, now, now I see you have successfully convinced me that these antifreeze fish, they are the product of evolution. Yeah, and you know, we, we didn't, we're not gonna talk about it, but for people out there, they should just know there are other species of fish that have antifreeze proteins that evolved completely separately, okay? They're from different original genes that got messed up and modified over time. And so this is something that happened over and over again and is a really good example actually of what's called convergent evolution. So animals that picked up traits the same kind of benefit, like antifreeze when it's cold, because it's generally useful for those fish, but came from very different evolutionary places. Well, Sean, we got time for one more animal. And this one, you know, Stacy is our sound lord, and she generally finds us boring. And she's like, Nathan, you need to do lizards, okay? Do you have a lizard that we can talk about that proves evolution over intelligent design? Yeah, I think I do, and uh, it's got an awesome name. It's Liz called the Sleepy Lizard. I fucking love those lizards. Sleepy Lizard from Down Australia Way. I fucking love Down Australia Way. And we're going to get into it. My name is Tyler Jerry. You may know me from alternative BBC comedies, like 
the janitorial crowd, and eek, the queen. If you're like me, you fuck. But you're not like me, are you? Studies show that today's youth are the most under-drugged, under-drunk, and under-sexed gaggle of loser wankers. Studies show that you need an orgy. That's right, orgies. They provide necessary socialization for isolated young people, while also getting your nut off. And now there's an app for that, called Orgy. Sign up and you'll receive hourly updates on all the newest orgies in town, with descriptions, group sizes, and the paraphernalia you'll need. Use our promo code PETRIDESH, and you'll get several peacock masks, a complimentary fistful of lube, and even an assigned chaperone who will introduce you to everyone before you fuck. Take it from me, young person. You'll need it. Never since the dawn of civilization in the fertile vulva of Mesopotamia has there been so little sex. And never before has it been so easy to get. Sign up for Orgy and slip right in there. Okay, guys, we're back to Petri Dish. Now, I think Sean, Dr. Sean, Sean, scientist, Alan Einstein, Schrodinger. You have, you have shown to me definitively that evolution is at least a legitimate theory, along with intelligent design. Fuck. But now I'm seeing, we, we want to talk about lizards, and I'm seeing something really weird here about these blue tongue shinglebacks. I'm seeing, first, that they're monogamous, which I don't believe, because polygamy is provably superior in evolutionary terms. And second, I'm seeing that they have a Third eye. Sir, are you suggesting the Illuminati are in fact lizards? Reply. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while the Illuminati have a number of alliances with the lizard people, in this particular case, I'm talking about a real organ that is sometimes called the third eye or the parietal eye. Jesus. Okay. So, just to give a little context, these are lizards in Australia. Which already means that, like, maybe they're real, maybe they're not. Australia <laughs> maybe exists. Yep. But, and they're these big lizards that have another eye? Right. Yeah. So these lizards, sometimes called shinglebacks, bobtails, sleepy lizards, they have this third eye called the parietal eye kind of sitting on top of their head. And, I mean, that, like, you know, kind of you alluded to a little bit, they're interesting lizards in general. They got a lot of cool stuff going on. They give live birth to young so See, I don't they, support that either. They, they don't lay eggs. They actually give birth to their young life. I find it uncanny to own a lizard that is both monogamous and gives live birth. Yeah, it's like more human than you. I don't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, yeah, I, I think one of the really interesting aspects of them from an evolutionary perspective is that they're a good example of this parietal eye or this third eye. Okay. And this uh, third eye, the use in this animal, seems to have evolved for uh, navigational purposes. And so these animals are really good at kind of figuring out where different locations are in some kind of internalized map. And to figure out which way is kind of north, south, east, west, they use the parietal eye and polarized light to figure it out. Okay, so what is polarized light? Yeah, so polarized light is basically that you can have light beams, kind of the wave form of light, 
moving in a lot of different spins. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> this, this explanation is not going to work as well as okay. I was hoping it would. So we're going on a quantum level, is that light is both a wave and a particle, <laughs> and thus they have spins to them. And a lizard can detect that magic, maybe not real, <laughs> crazy Einstein shit. Okay, I think I think there's a better way in on this. Okay. You know how there are some sunglasses where if you're wearing the sunglasses and you look at like your phone screen, it'll look kind of weird and rainbowy or something like that? Is this another Illuminati thing? <laughs> it's because we have polarized lenses sometimes. Okay. And that can stop some of the light. What happens with the sun is that the sun's rays of light will hit our sky. And if the sun is at a different angle, if it's yeah. right above us or if it's kind of off, it's like 2 p.m., it's mm. to the side a little bit, the way that the rays hit our sky actually polarizes the light. And if you're an animal that can tell the difference between polarized light, we can't. But if you are an animal that can, you can kind of tell where the sun is in the sky just by looking at the polarized light. Okay, so so polarization occurs in the relationship between the sun's light and the sky. Yep. Step one. Step two, there is in fact a sun. And step three, the sun is not just a holograph that's projected on the dome of the hollow earth we live in. Okay, first of all, you're discussing <laughs> flat earth. Okay, get your conspiracy straight. I believe in hollow earth. I'm the future. <laughs> the flat earth is the one with the dome where we keep shooting rockets up and they keep hitting the dome and that's why you never see a rocket come back down or some shit. All those shit. poor astronauts. <laughs> all dead. <laughs> no, that's that's all Stanley Kubrick propaganda, dude. They're filming the... Anyway, okay, so, I can't handle so, it. And, and just to be sure, so we give some context. So lizards, they have on the top of their head this third eye, this uh, parental... Parental vision. Parietal, but Parietal yeah. Parietal eye. And that can see the light that's polarized for the entrance of sunlight into the sky. And it uses that to navigate. Right. So kind of originally, uh, scientists weren't sure if the parietal eye just tells where the sun is. Since it's on top of their head, it's kind of always pointing up at the sure, sky, Sure, so right? it could just be a normal eye. Right. And and if you think about it, like if you're trying to figure out north, south, east, west, and you're a boy scout or some shit, right. and like you, you weren't diddled by your scoutmaster. Controversial. Then, <laughs> then you can kind of tell like, oh, look, the, the sun is setting. I know it's in the afternoon and it's kind of coming down. And so you can kind of tell that's west, right? Because the sun sets in the west. I think you could learn that even if you were being diddled. I think the diddling is unrelated to whether you learn directions or not. Anyway, so you're a Boy Scout. With or without diddling, you can figure out with the sun what the directions are. And so scientists initially thought with lizards, oh, this eye's looking up. They see where the sun is. They can figure out north-south coordinates. Right. But, but some, sometimes that's not useful, okay? Because sometimes hey, maybe it's a little bit cloudy that day right. and the sun's behind a cloud. Right. Or maybe you're a lizard. You're hiding underneath a rock a little bit. Maybe the Illuminati forgot to pull the lever and the sun image is not moving as it's supposed to across the hollow earth. God damn. We're never going to get out of this, are we? We're just doomed. <laughs> well, we're inside an earth, so of course we're not going to get out. Damn it. Uh, okay, anyway. Fuck. Fuck. Okay. So, because there are situations where you might still be able to see the polarized light, but not exactly where the sun is, yeah. um, they ran some experiments, and they were able to find that the, the lizards really were detecting the polarized light and didn't actually need the sun to be in a location. Wow, that's super cool. And so using this kind of detection system and the parietal eye, they can navigate sort of maps in their head to get back to locations that they've been before. Why the fuck doesn't everything have that? Like that feels like one of those things, not to use optimization, but like that feels like that's useful always for everything. Why don't we have a third eye? Why don't we have this 
this perennial gland. <laughs> Parietal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so one of the really interesting things is that animals in general seem to have this. Including Americans? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Europeans, Americans, or sometimes. Um, yeah, so the, the situation is that for us, the evolution of this parietal eye has actually gone a little bit different direction, and now it's something called the pineal gland. Um, Wait, so you're saying we have a thing that's like the third eye a lizard has? Yes. What the shit? And actually, sort of the attribution of it to being like the third eye or something like that goes way back historically. Aristotle was sitting around looking at like open Greek skulls, I guess, uh, and saw this little button kind of in the center of the head. It, it, it's really pretty close to the center of your brain area. They saw this little, little guy and was like, that's where the soul is. But then the Warren Commission silenced him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the little gland is, uh, in humans, it's related to the secretion of melatonin and the regulation of sleep cycles, and uh, it helps out with some of the regulation on circadian rhythm. Okay. And so uh, all of that stuff is like day and night cycles and sleeping and everything like that. And that's all kind of related to one of the other potential functions of the parietal eye, which is being able to tell when it's daytime and nighttime. Okay, so that's interesting. Because when you first described the human uses, it sounded like kind of just different from the parietal eye on lizards. But what you're actually saying is that there's a core functionality to it that existed millions of years ago before we branched off in evolutionary terms. And now humans and lizards, we have different uses for the parietal eye or for, for the gland but that they actually still have a common root. And that's in telling weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of the interesting things is that the human pineal gland actually still has some of these vestigial photoreceptors. Oh. So we actually still have cells that could detect light, except this thing is way the fuck inside of our skull. So there's definitely no light getting to So if to I it. like drilled a hole into where my third eye would be and get it all the way to that gland, I could see a little bit of light? You could you could shine a little bit of light on that, and those and those photoreceptors might be able to detect that you're shining light there. It seems like a bad idea, though. Well, I guess, yeah, sure. Unless you you know you wanted to do some like trepanning or whatever that was called, right? <laughs> Where they like kind of get a little hole in your skull for the for the gods to get in. Does it work? For, for the gods to get in? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Yeah, don't try at home, kids. <laughs> but yeah, you can actually kind of see the evolutionary path of the parietal eye pineal gland in that different animals have it to greater or lesser extents. So like right. with reptiles, not all reptiles have a parietal eye. What? Some of them have this little spot where they can kind of detect the light on the top of their head and then other ones just don't have it at all. But amphibians almost universally have it. So let's let's grind, let's bring it back to our hiking conversation. Your bear frog grills, your bear reptile grills. What are the different paths you're taking where you would or would not keep this? Because again, to me, it sounds like this eye is super useful. Right. So I think one option is to kind of discuss what are some ways that it wouldn't be useful to have this yeah. soft spot on the top of your head. Okay, well, when you put it like that, I feel like... Right, but see, like that that is an example of some of the potential trade-offs that are involved here, right? Okay. Is that you do get a benefit from being able to detect light above you. For some animals, maybe that's good for detecting flying predators. Right, but right? then there's also this super squishy soft pot, like right where something is going to go and eat you. Right, and maybe for some other animals, the development of hair or fur, for example, might have covered a lot of our skin and oh, made yeah. it so that it's really not worth it to just have a, try to have a little gap in sure. our hair for a little eyeball on the top of our head. Like hobbitses. 
Yeah, Hobbits like just have too much hesitancy all... to see through their per, uh, their their eye. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Jackson did this. <laughs> this is his fault. Um, so whereas they're... amphibians, they're all squishy anyway. Yep, they got a lot of squish to them. Right. And there's probably benefits for their parietal eye that make it worth it to keep that around. Right. And so ultimately, if one of the functions of the parietal eye and the pineal gland was for circadian rhythm and being able to set up day and night cycles, mm. it's possible that in some animals that evolved so well on a chemical basis, a chemical timer, that it just really didn't seem necessary to have the sun involved anymore. Right, okay. We just got good enough at tracking our own rhythm we didn't need to check in on the sky. Sure. So like, I mean, that's a good example would be humans is that we have all sorts of different techniques. Like clearly we don't actually need this gland to have that function. We're clearly successful at telling night and day. Uh, we have mechanisms for North and South. Yeah. Yeah. Like the iPhone and shit. Right. Yeah. Like if, if we have Google maps, I don't know what you need this fucking. Humans are co-evolutionary with their tools. Yeah. We tools just, are part of our evolutionary process. We outsourced a little bit of that to, to mechanical stuff. Right. Whereas like, let's say you're a ground lizard, like a skink. Okay. Well, you definitely, it's definitely useful to have a top eye because you're always on the ground. I don't know if people know this, but lizards eyes are like kind of on the sides of their heads. <laughs> so they're just like looking at the ground. They gotta, they gotta know what's up. But if you're like an arboreal lizard, maybe you're a tree climbing lizard, maybe that you're you're a fucking chameleon. It's more useful to have a big fat horn where that eye would be, and the eye's not actually very useful because that's you know your eyes can see in other directions. You're oriented vertically. Having that kind of eye at the top of your head has less use. Yeah, I think something that would be interesting to look up, which I haven't for this episode, but maybe sometime you know we can have a discussion about it, is like lizards in caves. And stuff. right. Do they have a parietal? Because some of them don't even have eyes. Yeah. Right? Do they keep the parietal eye or do they kind of switch its function over to something else? It's just like cave humans who are now blind. <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of like Golem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Polish. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, what do you think? Are, are, you, are you convinced that evolution is a thing or do you still think that Satan is behind the corner and he's kind of designing all these dudes? I mean, I, I think both. Why can't it be both? <laughs> oh, fuck me. Right? Satan I I invented evolution to blind you from the truth of God. What the fuck was the point of it? Hey, hey, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Okay. God. I'm just kidding, guys. I support my brother and all his blasphemies and heresies. Just like you guys should support us on Patreon. Ooh, wow. Whoa, 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 whoa. That was sexy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> patreon.com slash Petri Dish. Yeah, look, uh, I hope that you guys enjoy this episode where we kind of took a survey of a few different things. We're experimenting with different episode styles, and so maybe this will be a thing that we do in the future where we just check out some weird examples of something out there. And hell, I mean, I hope, you know, my me being flippant aside, I hope that you guys, in hearing all this stuff, appreciate evolution on a more genetic level, with specific examples, all those creatures, they are the products of evolution. If you look close enough, you'll see it. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. Let's toss in some thank yous. So we should thank Stacy Song, our producer, sound lord, engineer, slash uh, music composer extraordinaire. My wife. <laughs> yes, she's she's married to you. <laughs> uh, and then we should thank Brian Allen, who did the artwork that you can see on our Patreon. Ich benign science. <laughs> and uh, once we have merchandise like shirts and, and beer cozies or whatever, I'm sure that he'll be responsible for that artwork as well. Uh, and we want to thank all the listeners out there who have 
stuck around for now three episodes. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys. Have a good day. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da.